Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Dimitri, and today we have the immense pleasure of welcoming Mark Krocek on the podcast. Mark is a practitioner and expert in coppicing, an author as well of the very recent and thorough book called Coppice Agroforestry, which I highly recommend you check out. All of the information is going to be in the links below. And in this conversation, we talked about how we can integrate coppicing into a farm context thinking about some of the products that we can produce from it, how it integrates agroforestry systems, how we can mechanize these systems, and in general, what are some of the economic considerations of coppicing. So I really hope you enjoy this interview. I also highly advise that you check out the interview that was carried out with our friend um, uh, from the Regenerative Skills podcast. That would be Oliver, that did a fantastic interview looking at the cultural and historical context of coppicing, which I think really complements the the conversation that we had today and I will also link this below. So I really hope that you enjoy the episode as much as I did. Hello Mark and welcome on the podcast. Really nice to have you on. Thank you so much Dimitri. I'm really happy to be here. Phenomenal. Um, so yeah maybe we can get started as we usually do on the show by you telling us how you got involved with agroforestry, with with coppicing, how you got around writing this amazing book, uh, Coppice Agroforestry, which we're going to be talking about as well on the show. So you could give us a bit of an intro as to your story. Absolutely. Um, and it's not a linear story and there may be a couple little tangents, but I'll try to make it concise. Um, this was not something that's in, was part of my upbringing. Um, just a connection to landscape, a connection to land management. Um, Although probably just a few generations prior, it would have been just a day-to-day -day reality for, for my ancestors. Um, I grew up in the suburbs outside Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And um, it wasn't really until I moved off to go to university in Vermont where I became connected to environmental issues. And I was very fortunate because the initial um, courses that I took were really focused around just introductions to all of the problems that humans are creating. Um, and very soon after I was um, introduced to much more solutions oriented thinking, um, initially learning about uh, the homesteading movement in the US in the 1940s and 50s, um, reading books like the, the Good Life by Helen and Scott Nearing. Um, and so these ideas of just beginning to ask questions about where do the resources come from that we rely on on the daily? Um, how are my decisions and daily habits affecting people in places around the world, whether or not I'm aware of it, started to send me in this direction of reskilling and, and resilience. And um, I spent a semester in India while I was in, in school at an eco village called Oroville. And that uh, was is a fascinating study, both in you know kind of ecological, cultural, and sp spiritual 
design and solutions based um, community. And that was where I first learned about permaculture and the idea of using design as a tool towards you know, manifesting that future, both ecologically and socially that we're envisioning. Um, when I finished school, I, I left really with very few practical skills at all. And I s wanted to focus on that straight away and spent about four years pursuing work trades and internships and apprenticeships with different practitioners in various realms, including agroforestry and traditional woodworking, ecological or natural building. And um, I was very fortunate. This was back in um, 2001 that I picked up Ben Law's book, The Woodland Way. And that book just completely inspired me, um, just the narrative he crafts about his relationship with place, um, the way that, you know, his life just expressed the seasonality. Um, and, and then also just the idea of learning to work with my hands and celebrate wood as this, you know, essential resource for human life. And I reached out to him and it so happened he took apprentices and I spent a maybe eight or so months working out there in the coppice. And that just was another part of my path that really kind of transformed my perspective. Um, I was very energized leaving um, England and coming back to the States. What I found was that there were very few people that knew much about coppicing. It wasn't part of the conversation. I reached out to one of my forestry professors from university and it he kind of just, you know, put it in this marginalized uh, toolkit of um, more or less unrelevant practices for, for, you know, temperate North America today. Um, and so there were several years of just you know, trying to figure out how to both expand on and, and share some of the experiences that I gleaned over in England. And for me, initially that became something I manifested through a, a, a deep dive into tr traditional craft um, I made chairs for five or six years using hand tools and traditional techniques. Um, and as I started to kind of explore how to expand my, my practice to a, a more holistic and broader context, you know, looking more towards education and ecological planning and design, um, that became a way for me to start to amplify my interest in coppicing. Um, Around 2009, I met Dave Jackie, who f some folks may know of as the lead author of the Edible Forest Gardens books. And we both shared this interest in coppicing and also just recognized that there was just a, a severe lack of good information for practitioners who wanted to apply it in North America. Most of the literature is in English is all um, based out of the United Kingdom. And so we started to bounce around this idea of crafting a manual for modern temperate North American coppice audiences. And, um, and so that was kind of the birth of this project was essentially just recognizing we both had this interest. I had some experience on the craft and value adding side, as well as the, the woodland management side. Um, he has his own breadth of experience and, and it's, this project took 10 plus years to reach fruition. Um, and, I'm not going to get into all that unless we want to, but essentially Dave Jackie and I started on this project together. Um, we did an immense amount of research and collation of research and built out a manuscript together. He did an, a, a massive amount of um, data analysis on um, different coppicing species for 
the book's audience. And the process kind of ebbed and flowed over the years. We had a lot of momentum for the first several years, and then we kind of lost steam for a bit. And finally, about two years ago, I resurrected the project um, and brought it to a point of completion. And now it's out in the flesh and it's something that's real. And um, we're really hoping that this reaches a wide audience and really gets people excited about these practices and thinking outside the box. And I, that's why I'm excited about this conversation. So I haven't, I haven't had the time to, to read the book because it's, 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 there's a lot of information in there. And that's what got me excited. I was like, wow, I mean, there's so much stuff in, in that book. I've had, the, I've had the time to skim over the chapters and the main sections and et cetera. And I, I got pretty excited. I can see how there are 10 years or, or, you know, of, of, of research and work into it. Yes. Um, it, it, was largely a result of um, just a massive literature review. Um, Dave amassed about a thousand articles from academic journals and organized them in a very sophisticated way so that as I was working through and writing chapters, I could just do a search in a FileMaker Pro um, file and all of the articles that were relevant to whatever the theme was, be it biology or physiology, um, and then I could go through and see which ones were relevant and, um, and then just try to pull whatever pieces seemed like they would help round out this narrative and integrate them into the, uh, the manuscript. It was an interesting process because that meant things kept kind of evolving and swelling in some places and needing to shrink in others and, and things didn't necessarily always flow. So it took a lot of crafting to bring it back to a point of, you know, ideally, um, you know, smooth, relatively easy to digest and, and, um, as concise as possible. It's a big book. And, um, like you said, there's a lot of information in it, but ideally it's like we were able to distill this vast amount of information into something that's, you know, essentially the most relevant pieces for people that want to apply this, um, in their landscapes and lives. I suspect that you didn't just use um, academic uh, information and resources, but also a lot of experiential information and, uh, around, you know, the practice of, of coppicing, etc. Whereabouts did you get that kind of information? Well, um, a, a good amount of it came from my experiences in the UK. Um, that's I, and and then also some of my travels. Um, we early on, Dave and I did a, a Kickstarter campaign back in 2010, and that was very affirming that there was a lot of interest in this project. We had about 3,000 people, or excuse me, 300 people support the project and raised about $18,000. Um, and we split that so that we each had uh, some seed money to, to do our work early on. And I used most of mine um, to travel both to... Um, the Midwestern United States and, um, and, and the Western United States, especially the Pacific Northwest, but also California. And then also, um, throughout continental Europe. And so that was, um, a really potent opportunity just to connect with different practitioners and learn about how they're using these techniques and how they've evolved in the landscape over time. Um, and then, also along the way, we just kind of made whatever effort we could to connect with people that would serve as valuable case studies. Um, just talking more about how 
these techniques are part of their their livelihood. Nice, amazing. I can I can hear some of our listeners maybe saying, well, "What the hell is coppicing?" And um, and rightly so. So one of the things that we were thinking about as we were planning this interview is to go over some of the basics of coppicing. And I'll also add that um, I, I listened to your interview with uh, Oliver from uh, the Regenerative Skills podcast. Uh, which I highly recommend, and you went a lot into the social, historical um, uh, context around coppicing, and so you had a fascinating an hour, hour and a half talk, which I also advise our listeners to check out um, and, to, and to tune into. Um, so we're going to have a we're going to complement that that episode uh, today together, and we're going to have a bit of a different approach um, to try and, and yeah and analyze a different aspect of it. Um, and yeah, so maybe we could go over some of the basic ideas of, you know, what is coppicing? Um, how do you coppice a tree? How often do you do that? Um, you know, what's the coppicing cycle? Some of this basic, basic, um, some of the basics of it. Absolutely. Um, so on the back of the book, kind of the most concise definition of coppicing that, um, we've come up with is the idea of cut and come again forestry. The idea that you can cut a tree or shrub to the ground, and in many cases, they will re-sprout from that remaining stump. And um, I'm just going to, there's some terminology that I think is good to be clear on early on. So trees, shrubs, and woody vines would all live within this container of, of woody plants. And so technically, if I'm saying tree in most cases, what I really mean are trees and shrubs, but it's kind of cumbersome to always say trees and shrubs or woody plants. But what I'm talking about are woody plants. So we're not talking about herbaceous perennials, grasses, forbs, things like that. We're talking about trees, shrubs, and in some cases, woody vines, but less so. So coppicing would be the intentional act of harvesting wood product from a tree or shrub and doing so in a way that encourages it to re-sprout from that stump afterwards. And there's a bunch of little caveats that um, tie into this definition. Most all broadleaf species, people may also know them as deciduous species, but not all deciduous, not all broadleaf species are deciduous species that don't have needles will sprout when you cut them. Um, there are probably some exceptions, but for the most part, um, most of those species will sprout when you cut them. Um, conifers on the other hand are not known generally to coppice in the true sense although it does appear there's a parallel technique that will allow you to manage conifers in a similar way. Usually for safety's sake, you want to leave a couple of whorls or nodes of branches at the base of a tree. Um, but more often than not, we're talking about species like maples and birches and beeches and hickory and oaks and black locust and things like that. When we think about coppicing willows and poplars, of course, um, and so then we get into sort of the time frame of how does this happen or when does this happen? Um, it's best generally to coppice during dormancy. So that is after the leaves have fallen and before the buds have swollen and started to open up in the springtime. And there's a few reasons for that. Um, they include that being kind of the least disruptive time to the plant's physiology to cut. Um, it doesn't expose it to all of the um, you know, the fungi, bacteria, and insects that may be um, in the atmosphere during the, um, 
I tend to think of dormancy in terms of winter, whereas like where you are um, in Portugal, you're going to have more of dry slash wet season perhaps. Um, but, um, you know, it tends to be a safer time of year for plant health to coppice. Um, in cold climates, the ground is generally frozen. And so it's a lot less damaging to the forest soils, which is very advantageous. Um, it also complements uh, agrarian lifestyle really well. And this kind of ties into some of our themes around this audience specifically is that for people that are engaged in growing food, generally that's going to be during the, the warm summer months. And so doing this you know, forestry work is a really nice complement. Um, it keeps you active, warm, and engaged during otherwise kind of, you know, quieter times of year. And then the last reason why dormancy is generally important um, for harvest is that it gives the new sprouts the whole season to grow and develop before you hit that next dormant stage. So you have this kind of long window um, for regrowth to happen. And in terms of how often you cut, it really depends on your products. Um, how big do you need those new sprouts to become? And so they could be anywhere from annually for things like basketry um, materials. Often that's what happens with uh, crops like willow. Um, but then it might be as much as 20 or even 30. Or I, I've seen some rotations that extend as long as 40 or 50 years. Um, and you're going to be getting more like, you know, 10 to 15 centimeter diameter poles um, at that point. Or, you know, four to six inch, um, maybe even a little bit bigger. Um, it's also going to depend on your climate and context and all that. But basically coppicing is, is the intentional management of trees and shrubs for sprouts by cutting them all the way to the ground. It's the most intensive way you could prune a plant. Interesting. And so I expect that this, the, the way in which the species react to that really depends on the species that, um, that has been coppiced. For example, I'm just thinking of if you're trying to aim for poles, um, and you coppice the tree and the re-sprouts, the straightness of the re-sprouts, which I've seen in chestnuts, for example, are very straight. I don't know if it's so much between the species and as much as the context where it happens. I'm sure there can be with between species, but um, one of the reasons why, you know, I get into this more in, in the podcast you were just mentioning with Oliver, but um, one of the reasons why coppicing was so commonplace historically is because you tend to get very straight growth because all of those new sprouts are are racing for for the light and um and they're competing with one another um and oftentimes like a lot of traditional coppice systems would have very dense spacing anywhere from two to three meters you know six to ten feet between um between a coppice stool is a stump that's being managed that's another little bit of terminology so um stools tend to be very tight together in a traditional system which really kind of encourage all those shoots to grow up straight um, and so yeah you will get some variability but for the most part it tends to really encourage straight healthy new growth um, the rate of growth can be quite variable depending on species and so a lot of the you know the, the species that tend to grow most quickly tend to be those that are the least dense um, and so when we look at things like bioenergy plantations, um, that often includes things like hybrid willows and poplars and sycamores. And then as we get into Mediterranean and subtropical climates, the eucalyptus is a very popular species. Um, and so, you know, we will see, you know, as contrasted with something like oak, you know, you may have 
you know, two to three meters of new growth in a season easily on some of the species I just mentioned, whereas oak might be half that or a third of that. Um, but by and large, you do tend to get pretty quality, you know, high quality straight stems. Um, and often it's more the context where they're grown that might influence that. Very interesting. Yeah, that's, um, that shows to my lack of experience in, uh, in coppicing, which, um, um, which is why if I were to get involved with this, I would definitely look into getting your book. Oh, just one caveat here is that um, as much as I feel like I know, I also realize that there's a lot that I don't know. And so all of these things can be taken with a certain grain of salt. I mean, for the most part, I'm basing this on 20 years of my own experience, but there's always exceptions to everything. Um, but, um, but I feel generally, I try to be very clear about where I feel generally confident about things I can share. And, um, and yeah, the, you know, just the, the simple act of resprouting tends to, tends to result in, in, in pretty quality from a craft point of view, like, you know, cause that's what's most important often is uniformity. Nice. And I was curious, what is the difference between coppicing and other resprout silvicultural practices? I mean, for example, where we, where I live now in Portugal, um, there is a lot of eucalyptuses and they'll plant them in lines. Um, you'll have a single stem for the first, um, I think it's seven, it's eight or nine years for the first cycle. And then they will, they will cut them and then they will, you will have a bunch growing. And I think then they'll just keep going there. Would that be considered coppicing or does, what's the, what, what are the nuances in the way that you, you go about, um, resprouting? So, um, what we would tend to kind of, how we would organize the concept that you're describing would be like the severity of the disturbance. And in the book, there's a, a, a illustration that, that helps kind of clarify what we're talking about here. When we think of coppicing, it's like the most severe disturbance you could ever do to a tree. Coppicing is basically just one type of pruning, but you can't prune a plant any harder than cutting it all the way to the ground. And when I say all the way to the ground, generally we're talking about leaving maybe just two to three inches of, of stump, five to seven and a half centimeters or so. So you're, you're just leaving a very short section of the, the stem um, to remain. If we were to think about you know, a less severe form of management or another related tool, we get into pollarding, or I always say pollarding. I think it's technically pollarding, but, um, and that can take uh, several different forms. Um, you could be just cutting a tree off when it's fairly young, maybe at you know, four to six feet off the ground, um, or even potentially lower depending. Um, and so it's just, it becomes almost like a lollipop, you know, there's a, a trunk and then one point, basically the coppice stool is now elevated up off the ground, just one point of new growth that you would repeatedly cut back to. So that becomes that point sort of frozen in time where the canopy of the tree is always brought back to often you see this much more commonly in Europe, um, both in managed landscapes, but also in urban environments, um, these pollard or pollarded trees um, that have a more complex canopy. There's, you know, a number of branches that, that extend out from that central trunk. And at the end of each of those is a knob that is being managed for new sprouts. And so on cycles that could range anywhere from three to as much as maybe 10 or even 15 years, depending, um, you're cutting back to that, that bowling or that knob. Um, 
And so you have a bunch of kind of almost like small coppice stools out in the periphery of the tree. And so um, generally, historically, the reason why you would do that for versus coppicing would be that it would allow you to manage for wood production without having to worry about browse from wildlife or livestock. So in traditional agroforestry systems, you could have this two-storied system with grazing in the understory and then wood production in the canopy. Usually with pollarded, pollarded trees, um, you would be managing for tree hay. And so either harvesting the leaves um, during the growing season and just, you know, kind of a cut and carry system, bringing them to livestock, or you would be drying them and then feeding them out during winter months as you would grass or herbaceous hay. Um, or else often it was fuel wood. You'd be growing firewood on a cycle that might be 10 to 15 years. Um, and so the, a couple other techniques that are, are parallel to coppicing and pollarding would be um, shredding, which is the idea of just basically removing all of the side branches from a tree and often lopping off the top of the tree. So you would have this like kind of tall, slender, single stem tree. Um, it's pretty uncommon these days, much more common historically, um, very labor intensive and kind of dangerous to be working along like a, you know, a often tall stem with not a huge return, but it was an opportunity to grow a single pole while also harvesting, you know, often it would be kindling or potentially craft material or tree hay. Um, and then hedge lane, the idea of like managing living hedges by restoring them through sprouting techniques is also kind of in this bucket or basket of, of um, re-sprout silviculture. And um, that's the idea of with a living hedge over time, as the lower branches die, the hedge, if it needs to contain livestock becomes porous, the animals can move their way through. And so to restore, rejuvenate the hedge, you cut about two thirds of the way through the base of the stem and then lay that stem down diagonally. Um, and that both stimulates new sprouts from the stump and also along the, the, the stem itself. And then it also allows you to tie all those pleachers, they're called the, those remaining stems together and make this dense wall. And so the, the idea is ultimately that we're just using disturbance to um, initiate sprouting for certain end product goals. Um, and I know that's something we'll get into a little bit, so I won't say more about that necessarily yet. It just reminds me of how fascinating uh, a tree is because they're, they're, these, 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 these plants are so malleable. We can shape them in whatever way we, we want. And, you know, from hedge laying all the way to long poles on a pollard, straight at the trunk at the bottom into it's, it's, this is really fascinating, uh, a fascinating, there's a lot of flexibility there in the way we can do it. And it's, uh, and I guess that back in the days, they were using this a lot more to their advantage than we do nowadays with our more simplified and efficient systems, which we'll, we'll get into later on. But I had a question around um, the impact on the physiology of the tree in the sense, what is, what does coppicing do to, um, to the longevity of the plant? Um, does it increase illnesses? Can we rely on a, on a, on a coppice block to remain, to remain with 100% of the stools after, after the first cycle, for example, and the first cut? How, how does it, you know, what, what, could you, could you give us a bit of information on that level? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I find this to be one of the more fascinating elements of the, of the discussion um, is that it appears anecdotally that um, the act of coppicing actually dramatically extends the lifespan of trees and shrubs. And the way I've described it in the book, basically interpreting um, some fantastic research that you know others have done over the years, is that it essentially resets the ratio of canopy to wood volume. And so if you imagine a seedling tree, um, the, the ratio, because each year, uh, it, kind of at the foundation, we have to have a little bit of an understanding of the way that trees and shrubs grow. So trees and shrubs grow in two main ways. They grow um, through primary growth and their buds, they grow outwards and upwards. And so they're constantly expanding in almost a fractal pattern to occupy more and more space. Um, and similarly, they, they grow in circumference or diameter. In girth, they add a new layer of wood around the entirety of the organism. And that's what we see when we look at a cross section of a tree is those growth rings. And so that's the cambial expansion through, you know, the lateral meristem growth. And as when a tree is very young, the amount of new wood that it needs to generate around the entirety of the organism is quite small in relationship to the size of the canopy, the amount of leaf area, because that's where all the energy is manufactured in the canopy through photosynthesis. So it's very favorable for new growth development. As trees start to get a little bit older, there's a shift in that ratio that the increase in the volume of the canopy begins to level out with the amount of wood that it needs to generate in order to, to remain healthy and, and vibrant. And as a tree begins to get quite old, um, that ratio changes dramatically. Um, the canopy is not expanding nearly at the same rate as it was when it was young, yet the amount of new wood that needs to be made is, is quite high relative to earlier on. When we coppice a tree, we reset that clock completely because there is no longer a canopy um, or there is no longer all of that above ground wood that needs to be encircled with new tissue. And so it basically rejuvenates the plant by keeping it young. Um, you know, it also allows for, you know, any, any wounds or damage or um, uh, disease that's developed in the upper parts of the plant to be removed. And so it all, you know, rejuvenates it in that sense as well. And so it just appears anecdotally that um, in many cases, the act of coppicing and pollarding will double or triple or more the lifespan of a plant. And some actually think that if managed with a consistent rotation throughout the life cycle, many woody plants may have an indefinite lifespan um, as long as they maintain that coppicing rotation. And I'll point to a, a friend and colleague of mine, um, Costa Bustacaris. He's a filmmaker from New York State, and he has a fantastic um, Patreon um, uh, service that he's made films of, of uh, craftspeople from all over the world. And he visited a linden tree in England that's 2,200 years old, and it's been coppiced basically in perpetuity for its lifespan. 
Um, and so it basically is, is helping just kind of rejuvenate and reset that relationship between, you know, canopy volume and, and wood tissue. And the, it's, it's the act of keeping young. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it's, it's a pretty fascinating way of looking at this reciprocal relationship between humans and trees and shrubs. I mean, this is making me think about some of the oldest cultivated trees that we know of, uh, olive trees that are 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years old. I think the oldest one that they know of in Crete. Um, and these trees are, are, they're not necessarily, well, they, we could be, we could say that they are pollarded on a regular cycle because the way that they're pruned is, you know, the branches will grow, they'll develop and then they'll start to mature and then they fall and then new branches come from the top. You cut off the one from the bottom, but this constant management is what enables these trees to, to last so long. And coming from a modern, um, horticultural background, um, it kind of, we were always a bit worried about making cuts on the trees, um, because of uh, pathogens and, um, and uh, wounds that create openings for fungal infections and etc. Um, of course, it's coming from horticultural, I mean, from tree crops, which are, which are highly sensitive, but this is not a worry for coppicing. There is potential for that. Um, and that's where there's definitely more nuance to this conversation than I have a full grasp of because some species are better suited at, at sprouting than others. Um, species like birch tend to really lose their ability to sprout after they're about 30 or so years old. Whereas things like oak, chestnut to a degree, um, one big exception in this realm of, of conifers not being sprouters is the, is the coast redwood, the, 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 the grand, you know, ancient redwood trees of you know, California. Um, and those will sprout when they're 2000 years old still. So, but generally speaking, we see that the ability and vigor of sprouting tends to decline once um, trees get to be more than maybe 30, 40, 50 years old, again, with some exceptions. Um, and uh, the, the, the question of kind of maintaining health and how do we make, you know, that, that's a big theme of, of the second chapter, which is looking at the anatomy and physiology of woody plants, trying to understand the way that, that they grow. Um, when we coppice a plant, it's, it's a little bit tricky because we can't necessarily apply good pruning technique um, to try to help encourage the plant to compartmentalize or wall off tissue because you're cutting between nodes, you're cutting between um, buds. Whereas if you're pruning a tree, you know, usually there's a, there's a point where the, the branch inter, or the twig or branch intersects the, the stem, um, the branch collar and the work of people like Dr. Alex Shigo through you know, deep um, analysis of the way trees grow has informed us that um, by trying to make our cuts right along that branch collar, um, we can encourage the, the plant to compartmentalize, to healthily compartmentalize that, that exposed tissue. Um, when we coppice, we can't exactly do that. So the best practices that I'm aware of when it comes to how to coppice and encourage longevity is to make as clean a cut as possible. And so this is where, I know later on we'll talk a little bit about like mechanization, but when we look at scaling some of these practices up, you know, this is all about the long-term health of the stool itself. And so bringing in tools like feller bunchers 
and or skitters or heavy machinery and driving through these woodlands can be quite damaging to the stool itself. Um, and so that can be a little bit challenging. Um, but we want to make good clean cuts as much as possible. We don't want to, you know, um, cause any damage to the bark as much as we can or create any splits in the base of the stem that are going to just invite water and, and fungal um, infection. Um, if possible, make cuts that slope outwards and away from the center of the stool because after repeated coppice cuts, you're going to have, you know, what initially was just one stump, you're going to have several stumps after the next rotation and that continues to grow. So really trying to kind of open up that center of the plant and direct water away um, are two of the main practices along with just trying to make cuts low because that tends to encourage the new sprouts to form adventitious roots that may anchor the plant um, better and just make it a little bit more resilient as well. And so those are some of the practices that, that dive into that. Um, pollarding is a little more complex because we are still managing this, um, this you know, entire plant canopy and, and getting to know which species pollard best under what techniques, how, like, for example, how many branches can a, a certain species healthily maintain species like sycamore or the, the plane tree, um, platinus is the, the Latin genus. Um, they are very strong and resilient and they can sustain a number of branches that extend out from the trunk and keep those in a healthy state. Um, mulberry is another one that's very robust and resilient. Whereas, um, other species may only be able to sustain a couple of bowlings or stems. Um, and that is something that probably, I bet the, the literature is out there, but it's not available in English language at this point. And that's certainly like there's cultural knowledge around that. And so that's something that we're still trying to discern. Like what, what are the best practices for individual species when it comes to pollarding specifically? The technique of how to prune it. I think it's, it's inevitable for us to enter this conversation now because Clearly, reaching that detail or that that precision in terms of you know having a certain cut done in a certain direction uh, at a certain point on the branch to not go too deep and not to damage the, the the stool. This is very tricky for mechanization. It seems like it would be. It seems like the type of at least maybe in the first cycle not, but then from the third, fourth cycle, the cycles grow. It would intuitively like this, it seems like it can, it can start to compromise the health of the stool. So I'm, I'm curious a bit about the experience that we have on mechanization of coppicing and, and what options do we have? Because again, you know, as we're, as we're talking about scaling up these systems, um, and which you've mentioned, um, nowadays everything is going towards mechanization in a way because labor costs are extremely high and, and, um, all these different issues that we, that we're facing in the agricultural sector. And, and so inevitably people will be thinking about, okay, this is, this clearly has a high potential can produce my own biomass for a variety of uses, which we will get into. Um, but how do I make this efficient? Um, and I'm talking here about maybe people that are working on a, on a medium scale to large scale farm and that maybe have, for example, 100 animals that they want to produce their own, uh, their own, um, biomass for, for their, for litter, etc. You know, what, what options do we have for them? Yeah. Um, well, I think in part it's helpful to, to sort of know the rules so that you know what rules you're breaking when you do things. Um, and, and so, yeah, when it comes to, you know, there's, there's trade-offs with every strategy, uh, with mechanization, we lose the, the attention to detail and the care that you can apply when you're doing it at a small scale. 
but you dramatically increase the amount of work that can be done. Um, and so to begin with, it's probably finding the, t- the level of tolerance of specific species for that more, you know, abrasive or harsh treatment. Um, where we tend to see mechanization, where I've tended to see mechanization applied with um, these practices has often been in either the biomass for energy uh, sector. And in those cases, because of kind of this, this, you know, sort of supercharged nature of the practice, often the things we were talking about, about longevity really don't hold true. Um, In the case of many of the hybrid willow plantations, they tend to be exhausted after about 20 or 30 years. And so you're a lot less concerned about the longevity of the stool in that case, because as long as it gives you, you know, four to six rotations, that's really all that you were anticipating based on the production models at the outset. Um, I've also seen this to a degree. Um, I I haven't done a ton of research on tropical systems, subtropical systems, but um, the idea of fodder blocks, um, you know, planting out woody crops in, you know, dense plantations managed, you know, often on very short rotations, even harvesting a couple times a season that either animals would just be, because this also gets into, you know, animals would be another, it's not mechanized, but it's, it's a much more efficient way of harvesting if you're trying to feed animals, you know, tree leaves is to give the animals access to the plant, but they're not going to follow all of the rules we were talking about in terms of best practice. And so there's this trade-off of efficiency um, for, for plant health. And so there may be some losses that happen as a result of that. And that's just, it has to be built into the equation, but I've seen, I don't know the name of the equipment, but it, it kind of looks like a, a very heavy duty sickle bar mower, like a walk behind mower. And this was in, um, I believe in India, I was watching some film of this and they were able to just basically mow their way through, a you know, a one acre block of mulberry that was two meters tall and, um, in full leaf. And they were basically creating these windrows of fodder that they could collect and, and feed. Um, I've also seen it with um, the silk industry, similar practice, the silkworm industry. Um, and so obviously those cuts aren't necessarily going to be perfect and they're probably going to pay for that just with a shorter um, production, productive life cycle before they'd need to replant. Um, and uh this all comes back to the product and it's, it's really about value adding. And it's like when you're doing things at a cottage industry scale, you, I mean, I know people that, that make a healthy living through making baskets and they're able to go and and harvest, you know, individually with a hand set of hand pruners. Um, and, and that's economical for them. Whereas once we start to look at more commodity crop, um, yeah, we're going to need to rely on equipment and it's not going to end up with sort of these optimal uh, treatment methods for the plant health, but it just may mean there's a shorter productive life before we need to start again. Yeah, that's very interesting. And one of the things that comes to mind is also the inevitable loss um, in terms of, of biodiversity, because we know that some of these very old um, um, uh, stools, especially pollards that have a hollow center, um, can be a, a huge opportunity for biodiversity, but again, we can't expect all the agricultural systems to be optimum in terms of biodiversity and etc. It's it will be anyways, or in any case, there will be some compromises that need to be made. So it's interesting to understand that 
you know, it's one aspect is more labor, and the other aspect, there's a trade-off between more labor and precise work, and then the other, and the other side is uh, um, less uh, a system that will less less last less time, and that will need to be replaced sooner. Um, and yeah, I was, I was I'm happy you mentioned this because I wanted to mention that example of the biomass crops, and um, and so I guess that they just come in with some um, discs and and claws, and they just grab a bunch. And as they do in forestry, and then the disc just cuts underneath. In um. what I've seen more often has been um, what appear. I don't know actually what the the name is for the equipment, but it looks like a combine harvester. Um, and I, I think in some cases they are just modified combine harvesters. So they, you know, it's a it's a it's a uh, big uh, piece of equipment that has you know a wide. It 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 looks like a um, a large sickle bar type. Um, cutting end um, and it just drives along and harvests and chips in one pass and is often just um, uh, blowing, delivering that material into a, a trailer pulled by a tractor that's driving along parallel. And so in a lot of cases, there's been a lot of great research um, in parts of Scandinavia going into this and other parts of Northern Europe where um, you know, the need for heating energy is quite high. And then um, the uh, uh, State University of New York and Syracuse um, Environmental School of Forestry in the United States has done a lot of um, research into biomass willows specifically. Okay. I've seen a, a hybrid model um, done by a French people. Um, um, I can't remember the organization, Agouf, they were talking a lot about it. And what they do is that they've got a hedge, um, a diversified hedge, uh, with species like oaks, maples, um, elms, etc., they they reach about 10, 15 years, and then they come with a claw. They grab the the the, the stems um, relatively high up; it's two meters uh, height. And then somebody with a chainsaw comes and cleans the and and does the coppice with the chainsaw. And then this tractor uh, with the claw, the basic uh, basic claw, not, not nothing too fancy in terms of equipment, but then lay them out on the floor uh, neatly. And then a chip would come and then they would chip these uh, this wood. Uh, in this case, it was to sell biomass for um, wood chips and then they would chip it and they would be able to sell the biomass and they would rejuvenate the hedge. Um, and, and, you know, it would be a way of a kind of an intermediate between well mechanization, but also a more precise work with the chainsaw. Although maybe I'd like to know your opinion on how do you manage it manually? Do you use chainsaws or does it have to be with handsaws, etc.? Um, and then it also gives many options because in that case they could chop it up for firewood or they could you know use it for biomass. But it was quite an interesting. Um, and at the same time, it was you know this is a hedge that was producing biodiversity and microclimate benefits to the farm. So. It's, it was. I, I found that system quite neat, although maybe not uh, an enterprise that would really pay strongly for itself, but definitely um, it would pay for the work of cleaning up the hedge and um, and and getting things going again. And um, I'd love to. I'd love to know your input. Have your input on this. Yeah. No. That sounds. That sounds very clever. Um, we, especially where I live in the eastern part of the United States, um, we are blessed with this abundance of mature forest in many cases that need management. Um, there's a lot of wood resources that are already available to us. So here in many cases, like something that you're describing, there's really just n often very little interest in it because the volume of wood that you get when you're cutting these small stems is so much less than harvesting big trees um, that most of the interest is focused around 
more mechanized forestry of, of, you know, what I know in Europe they call high forest and we just think of as, as forest here. Um, but that sounds like a really clever approach because you're, you're totally right that it's the handling of the material in many cases that is way more effort than the actual, like the, the felling, the cutting. Um, and so to be able to basically, you know, have this mechanical arm that's, you know, just consolidating and, and moving and, and, um, and just accelerating that flow makes a lot of sense. Um, I am not a purist when it comes to equipment and tools. Um, you know, if we were looking at the health of the plant, the best tool probably to use would be the bill hook um, or some other type of blade um, edge tool because creating a bill hook for folks that aren't aware is, is kind of like the temperate machete. Um, and it was really the, the, the predecessor to the pruners. Um, the hand pruners, it's basically a blade that comes in many different profiles and they may range from, you know, probably 15 to, to 25 centimeters in length um, and uh, wooden handle. And it's a wonderful tool to use, um, but there's only, you know, it takes a lot of skill to use it well. And um, what, what it does when it's used well is it creates a very clean, smooth, almost glassy surface if it's sharp. And so when we talk about plant health, that means there's just a lot less spaces for water to collect and fungus to grow and, and just opportunities for, um, you know, bark tearing and things of that sort. But unless you are a very skilled practitioner and not managing a big area, it's not going to be very practical. And so you move to maybe a pruning saw, like a hand saw, and that will probably be your next best option, clean cut, um, a little bit rougher, but also again, you know, quite slow. And then a chainsaw, just much faster and more efficient, but it does tend to tear a little bit more. And so uh, it, we're still talking about trade-offs to the point that we get to, you know, probably the worst tool to use if you wanted to, um, at the mechanic, the, the larger scale end would be a flail mower, um, where basically you're just shattering the stems, um, because that's going to often carry down into the stool and create these, um, fractures of the wood. Um, but in many cases I, I've seen it used, I mean, they use it along roadsides here all the time and just leave the chips on the ground. Um, things still sprout, you know, and no one's really concerned with the sprouting that comes back here. They're not doing it intentionally. So it's often a matter of like what you can get away with too. And in, in that case, uh, the flail mower often works. And so I think it also depends on like how valuable is the stool and what are the materials it's providing. And if it's simply biomass, I'd be a lot less concerned with taking the degree of care that I was talking about a minute ago um, with that, the finish of cut, et cetera. Yeah, and it talks to the diversity of uses uh, that these systems can have. As, as we mentioned before, one of them is just pure biomass. Another one is a hedge, a multifunctional biodiverse hedge that also serves as a biomass producer at long cycles. Another one is forage. And let's, maybe let's keep brainstorming here. What are, in your opinion, some of the most exciting kind of modern uses of, of coppicing, um, uh, of tree coppices uh, for farmers? Some of the ones that maybe are most common or most uh, that solve, you know, the, the, the ones that solve the most problems for farmers, because this is always what we're wondering. It's like, how can trees solve problems for farmers? And therefore, how can they be used by farmers? And we can improve the landscape, improve ecologies, etc. But we really try to focus on this aspect, which is what are the problems that farmers are facing and how can we solve them intelligently? Um, and so, I, I, you know, let's 
let's brainstorm a bit more here. Tell us a bit about about your your experience on on the, the types of products and be it on farm or you know used for the by the farmer him or herself or uh, as a commercial product as well. Um, we we should delve into both. So there's a there's a chapter in the book on the economy of coppice and, and products, and I think in a lot of ways the question of of why, which is what we're answering when we talk about the the product side of things, is at least as important as the what and the how because these practices have to be relevant to people for us to want to invest in them. And so I think this is really the core question here. Um, as we start, so personally, my interests um, originated around the idea of these like small scale, localized, high value crafts, um, people creating livelihoods around, you know, skilled value adding of raw materials. And then at the other end of the continuum is the, you know, the biomass production that we talked about. And there's all of this potential in between. And it's not to say one's better than the other, but the idea that, you know, a, a very small plot has potentially, but with a lot of skill, value adding, marketing and access to, you know, the right client base may have the same earning potential as, you know, dozens of acres um, that are managed you know, at, at more industrial scale. And so this really does come down like as everything to the specific goals, skills, context, um, and, and the, the surrounding, you know, fin financial realities of the farmer and the farm. Um, and so I like to organize these products along this continuum of added value of a way of thinking about, um, where different products fit. And this is a concept that's not unique to coppicing. It's really just you know, good uh, natural resource management is always using materials to their highest potential. And, um, and so one of the, the, the bits of lowest hanging fruit that I see for farmers, because if you don't have the interest, the skills or the access to markets that some of these higher value products might, um, you know, you're not interested in making rustic furniture, let's say, or making baskets or doing living willow installations or things where you're, you know, actually adding this craft enterprise to the farm, which maybe we'll talk about briefly as well. Um, I think conservation benefits on farms, shelter belts, windbreaks, riparian buffers, um, all are really, really valuable additions to the farm. And coppicing just becomes this tool that allows you both to harvest biomass and we'd be doing this in most cases at the type of scale that you're describing, where there's some degree of mechanization. We're probably not caring so much about this like detailed approach to stool health, um, but it allows us to both rejuvenate that planting. Let's say it's a shelter belt between fields and it's just helping protect against you know strong winds. Um, one thing that's really nice is that it allows us to control the stature of the plants. And so, you know, if we're concerned about the, the shading effects, um, it, it allows us to just reset that whole patch altogether and start from scratch. And in many cases with, with some of these faster growing species, we'll have, you know, like I said, two to three meters of new growth perhaps in one season, um, at least one and a half to you know, two meters. So you, you will see things rejuvenate very quickly. So I would say just again, from uh, improving the the quality of the landscape both ecologically speaking but then also looking at some of these you know sheltering also for livestock just having shelter from um wind especially in the winter months or the idea of like living barns during the winter um 
and shade, those become really valuable. And then you're not even having to be so concerned with how long does this stool, you know, is it, is it going to last and how much care do I have to put into rejuvenating it? Um, and also because I know, I don't know as much about some of the, um, federal programs in Europe, but in the United States, we have a lot more literacy that already exists around some of these conservation enhancement practices. And so when we talk about agroforestry and we're, you know, we're speaking with the U S department of agriculture's, um, natural resources office, they, they see these values in revegetating waterways and creating shelter belts and things. And so then it suddenly becomes this opportunity to think about what are some of the other products that can be built into that planting. You know, it starts off just as this conservation effort, but also has opportunities to be like, okay, well, here's some really nice oak sprouts that are coming up and we're going to maybe allow those to grow a little bit longer and they may be part of another enterprise. Um, so that's, that's one thing that I think just makes a lot of sense as a way to keep the stature low on conservation plantings. Um, a niche that I think has a lot of potential is in uh, the nursery realm, um, propagation stock. And this does get into a little bit more, um, you know, value adding and um, a bit more care. But um, many of these species, especially the fast growing ones, can be readily propagated from hardwood cuttings. And so that becomes both a way of just, you know, adding more to adding more woody elements to the existing farm landscape, but also adding an additional enterprise to a farm business. And so this could be at a relatively small scale, perhaps if uh, you were growing um, grafted fruit trees that you could be, you know, managing um, both for cyanwood production and rootstock um, using these techniques. And Martin Crawford of the um, Agroforestry Research Trust in Devon um, is doing something like this as part of his farm business. And there's been a, a, a general um, shortage of, of, um, planting stock here in, in much of uh, the United States these days because of a lot of the tree planting incentives and interest that's been growing over the last five to 10 years. So I think that's another great opportunity is um, some of these nursery type businesses. Uh, we've talked a bit already about just biomass generally. Um, I know there's a lot of interest in the use of ramial wood this also gets into some of the physiological questions that we were talking about earlier, but ramial wood uh, is a term used to describe um, stems that are less than about, I believe it's, uh, I think it's two and a half inches in diameter, something like six, seven centimeters. And that's smaller diameter materials um, have a higher ratio of carbon nitrogen or of, of nitrogen. Um, so they're better suited for kind of supercharging soil formation processes chipping that young wood tissue because you don't have, you have a lot more bark and cambium relative to a larger diameter stem. Um, it's much better suited to coppicing or to composting practices and that either tilled in or used as mulch surface mulch can be a way of, of rapidly adding uh, soil organic matter. And, and so on like more market garden scale, you know, growing this young, wood that's maybe coppiced only every two, three, four years, um, chipping it and then using it as, as biomass, as a, as a feedstock for soil improvement would be one, not to mention, you know, some of the, the just mulch and, or I, I, as a commodity, you know, just chipped wood is about the lowest value per unit volume that there is around here. We're looking at maybe 20 to $30 a ton. 
And so you really need a large volume or you need to be adding resilience to the, you know, the farm um, itself for that to make sense. Um, but fuel wood, both on farm and also as a crop is potentially one other option. Nowadays, what we're seeing here in our region, it's um, prices of everything going up through the roof, prices of pellets going through the roof. For pelleted stoves, we're seeing price of biomass also going through the roof. I mean, not that usually biomass around here in these low biomass producing regions is people that will be renovating orchards and they will be selling the biomass of maybe a 50 hectare block, which makes sense because then it starts to chip into the costs uh, doesn't make sense for the soil and etc. But um, it does make sense economically to, to cut back on the cost. But otherwise, I mean, even just the firewood, self-producing energy on our on our own. I mean, a household will easily spend a thousand euros on 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 firewood. If I had a, a a one acre coppice block, I would be already with my chainsaw preparing myself for next year. I mean, without a doubt. Um, and this is something that, uh, especially, yeah, I mean, it's an important consideration. Um, and I've, I, I, talking about this, actually, I have, um, um, we've interviewed a person on the show, um, called Federico San Bonifacio. He's in Italy. He's got a multi-cyclic forestry system, or sorry, a polycyclic forestry system. It was developed by Italian people for the, for the, the, the northern plains, very fast growing areas, uh, with, and so basically they've got hybrid poplars with oaks. And in between, they've got plantains managed uh, in coppicing systems that they that they sell they they cut uh, on i think it's a four or five year cycle and they sell for for biomass and and they're managing to cash flow quite a bit in their in their i mean it's uh, um, he showed me some of the numbers and it's pretty interesting uh, it brings in some 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 good cash as as the system develops and and again, it's, it's a stratified system. The coppicing keeps it quite small whilst the poplars are growing tall. And, and they also push the trees up, uh, and straight as well, whilst easy to harvest and to transform. And then they just make pallets of it and they sell it to the local community directly. And so it's, uh, it's quite, um, it, it can be an interesting, well, that's just an, an example to complement a bit the, the firewood uh, option but in this case of course it's very fast growing pop, uh, plantain not the longest burning uh, wood but it's 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 wood it burns oh that's great that, that's a great point though that you bring up is that we are seeing that that shift in energy value um and these energy shortages really starting to you know bring the conversation back round to this and you know when when dave and i first embarked on this book project that was uh, one of the big um, cruxes of this conversation is that by and large today in the industrialized world, energy costs are cheap and, and uh, labor costs are quite high. And it all depends on where we see this future moving. But if we imagine energy becoming more and more expensive, which, you know, this initially was um, the discussions when this book project first started were really revolving around peak oil and a lot of the economic instability following the Great Recession, um, you know, we don't really talk about peak oil much anymore, but clearly we're seeing these supply chain disruptions and, and just inconsistency in energy availability um, starting to make all of these practices again kind of fit this you know, relevant context. And in many ways, it's just paralleling all the same historical patterns that we've saw in Europe that were leading to you know, the, uh, the deforestation of landscapes and the need to conquest new lands in order to find new energy resources. And so, you know, bringing, trying to, you know, uh, recenter that energy production locally does seem like it's making a lot more sense.
Yeah, for sure. And again, as we, I mean, this is why I found this French example that I mentioned earlier on so elegant, because as we think of multifunctionality in our landscapes, uh, uh, systems of tree that provide shelter and shade for animals that we know have huge benefits for animal um, welfare, but also for animal productivity. Um, and similarly, we can look at crops and, and windbreaks and micro and biodiversity. And all of this, it starts to be an interesting way to make these systems somewhat productive, um, depending on the opportunities that, that are locally. I mean, this is what's also quite interesting about what you mentioned earlier on with these high value systems. If you do have, for example, the opportunity to be able to produce some cyan wood for grafts or um, in another case, firewood, less value, of course, but another strategy, um, um, basket material, uh, weaving material. If there's a local a group that does this, that needs this, this is all, um, it, it really does depend on the local context and it's hard to be able to generalize too much about what are the opportunities available. It's, um, yeah, something to, to analyze in each and everyone's context. Yeah, and I, I think also it's it's um, it's really driven by the motivations, passions, skills of the farmer. You know, it's like, are there things that you want to do? Because it's just like any other product development. Ultimately, um, if <laughs> sometimes the market doesn't exist yet, and you need to educate them about the value of whatever it is that you make. Um, moving into a few other more kind of high value. Um, uses. Um, we have a small, um, well, it's, it's modest. It, it, it makes us about $8,000 a year, um, which for our small farm is, is, is fairly significant. Um, shiitake mushrooms, log grown shiitake mushrooms. Um, and we aren't necessarily using coppice wood, but that's one of those that I think could parallel with some of these conservation uses we were talking about um, is that the nicer stems might be set aside and used for something like that. Um, <clears throat> one of the challenges with shiitake is that it tends to really want the denser hardwoods and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but they tend to grow more slowly. And so increasingly I've been interested in oyster production because it really likes the um, soft hardwood species like cottonwoods or the populous genus generally. Um, we have some soft maples that grow here, like the silver maple um, <clears throat> and the box elder, which are generally considered to be very low-grade trees. But these species that tend to grow very fast, um, you're often sacrificing density for speed of growth. But oyster mushroom um, uh, substrate uh, often is, is really optimal in these sort of fast-grown, um, low-density hardwoods. And so that's that's kind of another opportunity there that a bit more labor intensive, but can also tie into the existing kind of market connections that a farm business may have. And again, you know, in terms of seasonality can complement all of the harvest has to happen during the growing season, um, the harvest of the mushrooms, the inoculation and the, the harvest of the substrate um, can happen during the, the slower dormant season. Um, and then a couple others that just come to mind would be um, I think this, this starts to tie into your, your specific locale, like the more rural you are, unless you have access to wholesale marketing opportunities. Um, what, what in the United States we call the woody cuts, um, industry, which is basically harvesting, um, tree and shrubs shoots for floral arrangements. Um, and these are things like the curly or corkscrew willow, um, the colorful dogwoods, uh, or cornice is the genus for dogwoods, um, stems, things like, 
um, hydrangeas or quince or cherry that um, produce these beautiful flowering shoots. And those could be, you know, several, several dollars um, or more per shoot um, if you have access to that market. And so that's just kind of another one of those opportunities. It could be at a much smaller scale. This could be, um, you know, a dedicated planting that you're just kind of using these techniques, but it also, again, is, is something that's often done in, in the winter months and um, just another niche. And so really the whole idea here is just using creativity, good business planning, you know, market research, but then also, um, you know, gaining more clarity in, in what the goals and vision is of each individual farm and the, the resources on that landscape to find opportunities with these techniques. And I mean, another thing that's important to mention is that the infrastructure needs are relatively low. I mean, a chainsaw or a, a handsaw and a trailer, um, and you're, you're, you're off to, to harvest your biomass, uh, your firewood or, or whatever. And then another example, you, um, with your chainsaw, you lay, you lay down your copper spent uh, hedge on the floor and then you come in with a rented chipper, costs you about four, five hundred euros a day. And you, and you, and you chip the whole, the whole hundred, two hundred meters that you've just laid down. So it's, it, it's relatively low infrastructure. We're not talking about buying technical machinery to seed this, to do that, to, um, uh, maybe at the planting level, uh, depending on your con context, you may have to do it yourself or you can hire and contract the work out to prepare the soil, etc. But these are low infrastructure systems. Um, and, you know, tell me if, uh, tell me if you don't agree, but this is also op opens opportunities, uh, a lot of opportunities. Absolutely. Um, I, I think, um, it, it can take very little to, to, to make this work on landscapes. And what you're reminding me of is that, um, to a degree, it feels like we've been talking about systems established by planting. So, um, you know, establishing new uh, woody elements in existing farm landscapes. Um, I think one of the other reasons why coppicing could be really relevant, um, both from a planting perspective, would be like looking at more marginal land on a farm and either allowing succession just to occur and allowing whatever comes up to, you know, um, occupy that space and just letting it become more of a naturalized zone that's managed on a longer rotation um, or perhaps planting that out with species. But, you know, often we have those kind of scrubbier, lower fertility zones or wetter parts of the landscape that aren't as well suited for other types of crops. Um, I think this could be a good practice. And then, and then secondarily looking at these, these existing kind of scrublands or uh, early successional forest as being very low hanging fruit for these kinds of practices where you're not actually doing any planting at all. You're just tending a wild established managed stand. Um, there's limitations to both of these strategies, both, you know, planting something new means you assume all these costs energetically time and planting stock and site prep. Um, but you get the species you want at the spacing that you desire. Whereas if you've got, you know, existing woods, there's no planting required. You go in there and harvest and that is your first coppice rotation, but you don't necessarily get to choose what species are there and how they're dispersed. Uh, but I feel like, you know, on many farm landscapes where I live, um, we see that just with kind of land abandonment, there's, there's these margins of the landscape that have just kind of gone derelict. And those are just very easy spaces to begin to um, think about how we might adds glean some value from what's happening there without any need for us to 
to, um, you know, really intervene and, and establish new, new plantings. Now that's a really interesting and important uh, consideration um, to, to bring out. I, I was, before I wanted to mention two more systems, uh, typical systems, um, uh, products, uh, benefits from coppicing. Uh, one of them is uh, kind of unexpected um, in, in, in fig culture uh, to produce fresh figs or dried figs. Um, they're moving towards more intensive systems that are laid out by about five meters by two and a half on the row uh, in meters. And these, these figs, um, the, the beauty of it is that it produces on new growth. And so by coppicing them, you extend the growing season. And so basically what they're doing is that they're doing also, they need to be regularly rejuvenating the wood because they need to have a minimum growth to, to have more production. So they can't just be satisfied with 20 centimeter growth on the tip of a branch because then they're only going to have four or five figs on that branch. They're aiming for more. And so what they're doing is that they're slowly moving from a, a formed tree to a coppiced, multi-stemmed, open cup um, that they regularly cut back. And they'll do, for example, maybe one line out of two to not lose... Uh, um, so that's an, another way where coppicing can work for horticultural crops. And another one is obviously the big one, which is forage. Forage for animals, which nowadays, and there's a lot, a big movement in France happening around this, which uh, Etienne is very close to. Uh, with the French Agroforestry Association, etc., that are moving, that you know, with the increase in the prices of feed for animals, with um, the, the 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 supply chain uh, disturbances that we've seen, and the risk that that poses to a high intensity, uh, high input intensity system like uh, feeding uh, animals, um, um, depending on context, of course, they're moving more and more towards uh, tree forage. Also, farmers that are working on pasture, uh, climate change is affecting, and the, ext- the the more extreme temperatures that we have are affecting the productivity of the pasture especially in the summer when the when the trees have got that resilience and the, the depth of roots and the, the phys- physiological system to establish a, a green lush canopy and they're moving more and more towards working with ligneous uh, forage so um, ligneous forage is a bad translation for french but basically they cut down the trees and it's starting to be economically viable for them to do that to cut like they were doing before the french countryside is all of the hedges of the french countryside the limits of the of the of the of the plots in the french countryside has got lots of small plots they're all with big pollards large pollards of poplars of plant of plantains of oaks as well you see these big pollarded trees that now are exceeded there now they, they've been abandoned for years so they, they grow and grow and grow but this is what the the countryside was depending on these systems for feeding the the, the animals of the farmers uh, and subsistence uh, families. So, anyways, this is also a really important aspect uh, of, of the conversation because this really solves a big problem and is being scaled at the moment as we speak um, for animal farmers. Uh, well, I was just going to say it, it's 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 encouraging to hear about how much because there's so much cultural memory and knowledge of these practices already in place in Europe, whereas for the most part, a lot of people don't necessarily even know what they're doing or why. Like in in the the southeastern United States, there's this cultural practice that basically um, is a form of pollarding that you'll see in people's in front yards. But a lot of folks don't even necessarily know that that's what they're doing. It's just something that they kind of grew up with and have continued. Um, but as far as the adoption of these practices, because they're not part of our um, our history so much here, there's it's just much slower to see 
um, you know, the, the adoption of these things. And I think there's more conversation growing because agroforestry just as, as, as a practice that is <clears throat> acknowledged and encouraged both, uh, at the, um, you know, kind of within the agricultural university realm, as well as more the, um, the, the governmental and conservation realm, it's, it's really starting to um, grow leaps and bounds here in the United States and Canada in the last decade or so. But some of these other practices aren't part of the toolkit just because we don't have that cultural memory. And so it's, it's really interesting to hear about the innovations that are going on there. Um, and uh, yeah, I look forward to looking into those a little more. Yeah, we, we may have some interesting, um, um, we're going to start a, a collaboration with the French Agroforestry Association to run a podcast with them uh, called Cambium. And um, and we will be interviews, interviewing some of the farmers that are in French, though, that are doing these practices. Um, French is, France is a bit of a bubble. There's a lot of things happening in it, but it doesn't really go get out so much uh, due to language barriers, etc., um, but it's buzzing with agroecological practices. Uh, it's a fascinating uh, place to be right now for agroecology, um, I believe. Um, I, I had a question I wanted to ask you about, more physiological question, uh, which is very related to agroforestry and the interaction between a tree and an alley crop, for example, in alley cropping. Um, what is the impact of coppicing on root development? Is there any science on this? Because I tried to look and I didn't find much. Um, but, you know, if we're thinking about an alley cropping system where coppicing or pollarding can make a lot of sense to um, improve light access, um, as an example, or a windbreak system, relatively frequent, that again, who's a, who's a, after a certain while, we don't want to have too much light competition with the alley crop, um, and to, you know, the trees can bother also with mechanization, etc. Anyways, certain, these certain constraints, um, could it also benefit by reducing the amount of roots that are, that are needed? Because if we have a smaller canopy, we could potentially have a smaller roots. This is intuitively, but I'm, I, I need some professional help on this. <laughs> I don't have a confident definitive answer for you either. This was something that my research did not do. Um, and it's a great question. I think it would be really valuable to know. Um, I know just in my own uh, practice through some of the permaculture and, and also managed grazing realms, um, there's a lot of talk both in, the, in more of the kind of permaculture slash um, you know, woody agroforestry about you know, the use of nitrogen fixing um, woodies as a as a way of adding fertility to the landscape, but I've never seen any anything that describes and quantifies how much root dieback there is. And intuitively, my mind, um, I would imagine that most of that uh, would occur out in those like the periphery of the root system, the the fine root hairs. And I would think that as because one of the benefits of these practices is that when you um, you know, when you coppice a plant, you have a root system that's already established. So it's, it's, it's got this jumpstart over a, uh, a seedling because the root system may be five or 10 or 20 or 50 years old. Um, but that root system is still increasing in its scale every season. And so I would have to imagine that it's not going to keep it at the same scale as what you would see, you know, in terms of aerial parts that it would expand, but there would still be dieback among those fine root hairs at the very least. But it's a question I, I don't have answered. Um, I've heard of people using 
Um, you know, subsoilers is a way of like root pruning along rows and trying to minimize some of the competition between, you know, planted alleys of, of um, trees from within whatever the crop is within the, the alleyways. Um, if that's the case, you know, some species tend to be uh, more prone to suckering and sprouting from the roots. So it would be good to, you know, just be aware of that. If, if that's something you're planning to do, um, are you going to generate a whole bunch of new sprouts um, from the, the existing root system? But, um, but beyond that, I, unfortunately, I don't have a good answer for you. I don't know. Mm. Well, here, we, if there's any, and there are some academics and researchers that listen to our podcast. Well, this is a shout out to them help us find some answers. Um, because actually, um, I've just visited um, the Restinclier um, agroforestry research plot in Montpellier, the one that's uh, one of the uh, one of the initial and very famous agroforestry sites. And they had they've done an experiment. Um, it was kind of imposed on them because they had a they have large walnut trees, uh, hybrid um, black walnut and Euro and um, and English walnut trees uh, that they're that they're pruning and managing for 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 uh, wood production for uh, you know having a timber um, uh, trunk. And uh, they um, basically what happened is that they have an electrical uh, cable that goes in the middle of them, and so the, the electric department told them you have to cut the trees. So they thought, okay, so let's make an experiment out of this. And they pollarded the trees at about six meters. And now they're measuring the growth rate of the trees on the pollarded trees as compared to the non-pollarded trees. And they've seen that there's a reduction in the growth rate of these trees, which is interesting and it's expected, right? Less, um, less photosynthesis, less canopy um, size, so less energy going into the tree. Um, but uh, I, I'm curious if they're going to be measuring the roots. Um, because that would be, they're, they're, it's a research site and they've got like tunnels dug and stuff and you measure lots of things. Um, yeah, it's an interesting little, um, little experiment that they've got going there. I, I mean, so much of what's happening below the surface of the soil is, is a mystery to me. And, um, I, I have to believe that there is some root dieback and some, and, you know, improvement in soil formation and, and, um, and just kind of shifts in the uh, in the architecture of the roots as a result. But yeah, I, I just haven't encountered much, and I think it's probably because it's a pretty challenging thing to monitor. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about um, the productivity of the the of a coppice stand um, in terms of biomass as compared to other uh, forestry um, um, more conventional forestry um, practices, because obviously this is really interesting. To, be able to understand if biomass is the main product here, um, it, it can be an interesting element to, um, for the farmer to understand. So maybe you could talk to us a bit about this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, you know, I like to kind of couch this discussion, just reminding listeners that, um, you know, coppicing, pollarding, whatever technique that you're using is just one more tool in our toolkit. And I, I'm saying this especially as someone who lives in a place where we're blessed with um, you know, pretty abundant and moderately healthy high forest that is, you know, already multi-storied in many cases diverse um, and is growing wood just if left to its own devices. And so it's not to say that these techniques are necessarily better than conventional silviculture. They're just a, a, a parallel option when it comes to management. As best I can tell, um, it seems that 
coppiced uh, stands produce wood at more or less the same rate as an equivalent um, unmanaged, you know, just high forest or just regular forest wood. And in my part of the world, the range that I typically have learned to use is between about one half to one cord of wood per acre per year. And there's some conversion that we need to get to to make this relevant to everyone. Um, we tend to think about wood in in volume and not weight in the United States, which has its limitations. Um, but um, a cord of wood is a stack that's four feet by four feet by eight feet. It's a nice round number, like all things imperial. Um, but it appears that, that that range will vary even more dramatically if you're on sites with poor fertility or that tend to be drier um, or don't get as much sunlight. So, you know, the site characteristics have a huge impact on productivity. And, um, but what it appears is for the most part, you don't necessarily generate more wood volume um, in a stand that's coppiced than you would in a um, just natural forest stand. What's changing is the allocation of the, that new wood that's generated. So instead of it being, you know, a couple of millimeters around an existing, you know, large diameter tree, you're getting dozens of new sprouts that are, you know, your thumb in diameter in one season and, and they grow to be two meters tall. And so <clears throat> it's really just about thinking about how are we distributing that new wood that's generated and how does that then become useful? Um, that coppicing allows us to you know, generate wood products of small diameter. It's really the way I've kind of um, framed it in the book is about generating and exploring a pole wood economy. Pole wood being things that, you know, wood stems that are smaller than eight inches or 20 centimeters in diameter. Um, it's really all about thinking about that smaller diameter wood and how do we use it? And we're in this a civilization that's awash with lumber these days that most people don't think about the value and utility of round poles. Um, <clears throat> but it appears again, and, and this varies a bit because once we get into some of these like um, high density, uh, you know, short rotation coppice stands, it's basically more of an agricultural enterprise than it is a silviculture or forestry enterprise. And those are often super um, densely planted, um, fertilized, there's a lot of site prep that goes into it um, and weed control as well to really kickstart those systems. And that's where we're seeing things, you know, upwards of, you know, I'm just looking at some numbers I had here with, there's can be wide ranges depending on um, the scale of the stand, but with um, some willow species, we can see anywhere from six to, to 30 metric tons per hectare per year generated. Um, and then eucalyptus, can be you know equivalent or higher when we get into uh, warmer climates with things like black locust or robinia you know two to 13 metric tons per hectare per year um those are often at these super dense you know industrial scale plantations um on at least the higher end and on productive sites but um <clears throat> but by and large it feels like it's really a matter of just reallocating the way that new woods generated um, and so that just helps us kind of think again in terms of rods and poles, like how does that fit into our economy, into the, the products that we convert that material into and um, the ways we kind of add value to our farm business and or just, you know, our, our overall quality of life on a farm.
That's fascinating. And whilst at the same time, managing interactions, if we're talking like forestry context, managing canopy sizes, canopy uh, widths, heights, um, and, and the, all the ensuing impact on, on, on light competition, etc. So it's, it's a, it's a fine tool to be able to, to manage. Just to say that I haven't clearly stated this yet, but um, it's important is that light is probably the most important variable um, besides like site quality, but <clears throat> light is really essential to good coppice growth. And so historically, you know, traditional coppice stands would be this compartmentalized rotational forestry system of you know, small scatch, patch scale clear cuts that would be anywhere from you know a quarter to three acres in size. And that's really just about opening up enough canopy that those stools are flooded with light and can grow, you know, really vigorously. And so you, you don't, you can do this at the individual plant scale, but it's very important that as much as possible, they're getting a lot of light during the early years of, of regrowth that you can't just expect to coppice a plant in the middle of, you know, a, a forest canopy and get much new growth. And so light is, is a really crucial variable to all this. And you also mentioned another one um, just before, which is soil uh, quality. Um, and as with most tree systems, there is this belief that um, tree systems should go on very marginal lands because that's not where agricultural systems, but what we know of, especially with trees, um, with the trees we're working with in Europe, for example, in agroforest systems is if we plant them on very poor land, they're going to grow very poorly, often not super straight and uh, have... Um, of course, it depends on the objective, but if the objective is to produce um, timber, then we have to be thinking about reasonable land to plant this on. So I'm curious um, as, if that also applies to coppicing. I mean, yes, absolutely. Um, I also think that um, ideally we're trying to match species selection to site quality. And so there's a certain element of just anticipation of, of lower productivity, lower quality. Um, and, and so, yes, there's a tension that exists there because with some of these biomass plantations, they really want quality agricultural soils. And so that becomes a bit of a, of a challenge because, you know, we often tend to want to preserve those landscapes for food and not so much for fiber or biomass. Um, so I would tend to look to more early successional, like on more marginal sites, I tend to look to more early successional species, nitrogen fixing species, species that tend to be disturbance adapted and, and pioneers, so to speak, um, and less at things that are going to be necessarily, you know, more slow growing and, and requiring of better site quality. And um, that's again, where I think also just kind of looking to what ecological succession naturally trends towards in your landscape is going to be a great tool. And so there's, there's similarly to the economy side of things, when it comes to species selection, there's, there's, you know, what you want for whatever your product need is, but then there's also what your site tends to suggest. And so just like any other crop, it's like you want to do some of that in upfront analysis in terms of site and or either do whatever site prep is going to be necessary to try to improve things for the species you'd like to grow um, or perhaps recalibrating your, your goals and, um, and your, you know, your production needs um, around whatever those constraints are on site. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Adapt expectations as well to the potential of that site. Um, I was just curious if, for example, a similar species 
would grow a similar species, one managed as a straight stem for timber and the other managed as a coppice, um, um, if there would be a large difference in, in if the management of it as a coppice, for example, would maybe favor, would make it easier for the tree to gain value um, in, um, in, in, poorer, in a poorer quality site. Um, you see what I mean? Because of this idea that often, for example, in poor sites, we have, uh, we have trees that do not grow very straight and that are, that struggle. Um, and so maybe a coppicing system would be a bit more adapted, um, in, instead of trying to aim for a very, very straight trunk. Um, but anyways, this is some, this is specifically some of the feedback I've been having from, um, black locust farmers in, um, in France, for example, that I've been visiting recently and it's been very interesting. So, um, I think to a degree that also the genetics play into it quite a bit because there can be a lot of variability in, especially with, with black locust, um, there can be a lot of variability in terms of just the straightness of the stem um, to begin with. And so, you know, they, they talk about chipmast locust that's been selected and is often, um, you know, propagated um, asexually so that you know that you're getting uh, stock from a parent that grew straight would be at least as important as site quality. Um, the way that we talk about site quality in forestry here in the States is using this idea of the site index. And, and so it, you may end up with like, for example, the black, I'm planted black locust on silty clay soils here, very heavy, dense clay. Um, it doesn't really like those soils. And we've seen a lot of damage from the locust stem borer, which is, um, uh, you know, I was, my high value product coming from this stand is hot poles, fence posts, and, and building poles for outdoor structures, arbors, pergolas, etc. Um, and so some of that damage that's gone on is going to render those poles not useful for my highest value. <clears throat> and I think it's largely because I came to this site thinking I wanted to grow black locust for these uses, kind of ignoring the fact that I'm trying to grow it on soils it doesn't like. So it has been more susceptible to pest damage, be probably because of that. It may also be a genetic predisposition as well, based on the, the stock that I sourced. Um, but um, we talk about the site index as a, as a measure of the productivity of a site. Um, and, and so that's a way different soils we have, you know, named all the soils and the continental United States are classified. Um, some soils will just grow wood faster based on that productivity. And, um, and so you may end up with more defect or more, you know, than being more disease prone. Um, I don't know that it would affect straightness. I would think the density of the stand and the genetics of the stem would be more a factor there. Um, but I, it would definitely affect rate of growth that it would just take that many, the site index basically, um, is a figure that describes at, at 50 years age, how tall should trees reach on those soils? And basically all of the soils that they've mapped in the, in the United States have a, an associated site index. And so the higher the number, the faster the growth, the more productive the soil. Um, so I would think that would be a bigger factor again, coupled with just more susceptibility to disease or, um, or, or pest damage because they're not well suited to that soil type. I, I think in terms of your question on straight growth, um, it would be better suited by planting densely and then thinning strategically uh, along the life of the stand. Although if you're, and then 
I mean, if you're, if it's initial plantation, they're just single trees. When you coppice them, if that's the goal, you're going to get a bunch of sprouts. And so you can either leave those, all those sprouts to self-select and the ones that grow fastest and strongest are the ones that win, or you could take the time to go through and prune down to two or three sprouts on each stool. Um, and in that sense, you know, you kind of concentrate that energy and also decide who wins. But again, by keeping things fairly dense, depending on the rotation, again, you know, a, a 15 to 20 year rotation, they may be, you know, three meters, 10 feet apart, both in row and between row um, is what's going to really try to help send that growth upwards. And then being as deliberate as you can be with sourcing genetics that show the quality of growth that you want, I think also is, is important if you have that option. Listen, I think that we've covered a lot of, uh, of this, of some of the main topics uh, um, we wanted to, to discuss together. And um, maybe we, you could tell us um, a bit more about where we can find the book that you've written, Coppice Agroforestry, and uh, also find out more about your work and your farm. Um, where, where, can we, where can we get some more info? Absolutely. Thank you. So um, uh, for listeners in the United States, um, they can buy the book straight from me, um, which I like best if that's uh, an option for you. Our website is valleyclayplain.com. That's our farm website. And that's uh, clay, P-L-A-I-N, Valley Clay Plain, which um, valleyclayplain.com. The Valley Clay Plain Forest is the natural community that is was once commonplace throughout the, the basin where we live here in the New York, Vermont area. Um, and um, for, for folks in Canada, um, New Society Publishers is a great option. And um, internationally, I don't have the best answer internationally. It should be available. You could, you could ask at any local bookshop. They should be able to get it for you through their distributor. Um, I know it's available through Amazon. Um, I tend not to recommend that as an option for folks if they can buy it from someone else. But um, I know that does work. I've been told Better World Books is another option in Australia. Um, I believe Meliodora was going to carry it as well, which is a, a, a publisher slash distributor there. Um, and um, and as far as like finding out a little bit more about myself and 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 the homestead farm that my wife and I manage here in Vermont, um, we have a few different websites. I mentioned the farm website, valleyclayplain.com. Um, we have basically, we focus primarily on shiitake mushrooms and um, black currants and some value added crops around that. And then we also have a high tunnel greenhouse. Basically, we're, we're a big homestead small farm with um, an enterprise, a couple enterprises that are increasingly um, becoming part of our income stream here. Um, starting to add some of these craft bits into it as our as our um, planted systems begin to mature, and then um, both as a designer, consultant, and educator, my website is keylinevermont.com. That's uh, K E Y L I N E Vermont, all spelled out V E R M O N T dot com. And um, so those are good places to learn a bit more about me. The book had. Uh, has a website called coppiceagroforestry.com. And I haven't added much to it recently, but um, there's some uh, a pretty deep archive in the blog of chronicles of travels and and some of the research and, and uh, learning that Dave and I did along the way. So that's another kind of compendium to the book itself that I'd point folks to. 
Very nice. Fantastic. Amazing. So I'll, I'll put all these links as I usually do in the show notes below for the, all, all our listeners to access easily. And, um, and yeah, so this is a very exciting topic. And, um, um, thank you so much for taking the time to, to share with us your experience with, with, with copy psychoforestry and coppicing. We, I'm sure we could have talked a lot more as well about your farm and your different activities and, uh, but, you know, and it's difficult even in an hour and three quarters to, to cover one subject properly. And this is the beauty of the, of, of this type of work. So thank you so much for taking the time, um, and, and sharing your experience with us. My pleasure, Dimitri. Thank you so much. I, I really value the work that you all are doing and the the reach um, that you've achieved and and the, and the platform you're giving folks. Um, so keep it up. It's it's fantastic.